Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Music Works. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Paul Whitaker OBE. Paul is the nation's most loved and respected interpreter of music in British Sign Language. As a musician, performer, workshop leader and inspirational speaker, Paul will lead this episode with a discussion on how to make classical music more accessible. We'll shortly head over to the Music Works studio where Paul is waiting, but first here's an advert from our sponsor. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians' Union. I'm a member of the Musicians' Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK, and it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry, as well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the mu.org. Welcome Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you. I'd love to see you want to chat with you. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Um, so today we have Paul Whitaker, sign language performer, with us today. And um, Paul, I would love you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, I am, as you already know, Paul Whitaker. I was born in Huddersfield in 1964, and I have been deaf all my life. But because I talk well and I don't sign all the time, a lot of people think I can hear quite a lot. But take my hearing as out, I hear nothing at all. And it's worth remembering that when I was young, sign language was actually banned. So all deaf people were forced to learn to speak. And I grew up in a musical household. My mum played the piano. My dad loved it, but was no good at making it. And when I was five, I started learning the piano. I joined my local church choir when I was seven and a half. Through that, I became interested in playing the organ once I started when I was 12. And round about the same time, I decided that when I grew up, I wanted to get a music degree from somewhere and then find some way of helping other deaf people and those who live and work with them get involved in music. So that's a brief background. Gosh, it's quite the, uh, quite the background. Um... I hadn't actually realised that um, sign language was banned at that point. How, when did that change? Um, I probably didn't really change until the very late 1960s, early 70s. Um, there was a conference held in Milan in 1880 with Alexander Graham Bell, who is not a hero of the deaf community, um, put forward a proposal that signing should be banned and all deaf children should learn to speak. The result of that being that you had several generations of deaf people who were forced to learn to speak to the exclusion of developing other life skills. And so signing went underground. And even 15 years ago, you still used to have those debates about whether you should get someone to speak or whether you should get them to sign. Um, they're largely irrelevant, quite honestly. I used to get self-sustained by them. The viewpoint was, well, if you teach someone to sign, they won't bother learning to speak as if speech is the most important thing, and it's not. 
I'm not bothered how somebody communicates, whether it's through signing, whether it's speech, whether it's through music. Um, it's that ability to both give and receive information as young and as possible, which is so important. Absolutely. Um, so carry on with your story, please. So you decided you were going to get a music degree. What happened next? Um, well, studying some music degree was absolutely easier said than done. Because back in the early says you didn't have what I maybe incorrectly call the kind of quota system nowadays that you have to have so many disabled people, so many of a certain gender and all the rest of it. Um, and I was actually turned down by 12 universities over two years because they said, no, you're deaf. Deaf people can't be musicians. Um, but eventually I got into Oxford, spent three fabulous years at Wadham College from 83 to 86 and then spent a year doing a postgrad course at the Royal Northern. And straight after that, I got into setting up the charity, which I first dreamt of when I was 12, which was called Music in the Deaf. Um, I used to contact local deaf schools, resource bases, and ask, can I come in and do some work? They said, yes. Quite honestly, I think the teachers just thought we can have a free period. Um, and so I would go and I'd do some music work with the kids. Uh, they enjoyed it. And so people started chatting about it. I started to get invited to go and work further afield. Um, I then started being invited to go out doing inspirational talk. Um, and that was something that I actually found quite scary because when I was young, I was a very quiet, shy person. And the thought of standing up in front of an audience, talking to them was very scary. Performance is completely different. And I've had a problem with that. Um, but I suspect that that's true of a lot of actors and musicians. You either give them the knowledge to play or you give them the things to say, and they can do that. But actually standing up in front of people, opening your mouth and delivering whatever, is quite scary. Um, but I love doing that. I don't mind whether an audience is 20 people, 200 people, 2,000 people. Um, I just enjoy communicating with them, sharing my life story, and hopefully making them more aware about deafness, because it's incredibly common. Almost everybody in any audience will know someone who has a hearing loss, and the chances of them developing a hearing loss themselves later in life, especially if they sit in front of the brass section in an orchestra, are very handy. Absolutely. Um... Yes, and music in the deaf um, still is uh, very sort of strongly operating in in the field, isn't it? It's uh, still going strong. Um, well, I actually left music in the deaf in 2015. There were various mm. reasons for that. Part mm. of it was that I could see that the education system was changing, funding was changing, the pendulum always swings with disabilities, mm. and there were other things I wanted to do. And I did not want to be in a position a few years down the line of looking back and regretting I didn't do things. Um, so that was one reason why I left. Um, but I do quite a lot of the things that I used to do. I just do them off my own back now rather than having the support of a charity behind me. Mm. Um, the work-life balance has improved a lot over the last seven years. It really has. Um, and I think often if I went back and did things again, I would do them very differently. I would make more time for me. Uh, but one of those jobs where you did what needed to be done. Um, mm. 
some times you spend the whole day in the office and then you'll be going somewhere in the evening to either rehearse a performance or doing a performance and then you travel back home and then the next day you'll be back in the office again and then you might be out doing a talk. Yeah, you know, it was never a nine-to-five job. Um, and even though I loved it, um, sometimes the hours I put in every week went through the roof. Um, and it wasn't terribly good for my health, physically or mentally. I'm sure, absolutely. So what is your focus of your career now then? Why don't you tell us uh, what a sign language performer does? Uh, yeah, my main focus now is really on sign language. Um, when I was probably middle, 20, 24, um, I wasn't actually that enthusiastic about sign songs, translating songs into sign language. I felt that that belonged more in the realm of drama and theatre than of music. Um, but I changed my views radically, partly through Richard Stilgo. Um, I knew Richard from well, probably the late 80s, 1988, something like that, um, because he set up a charter with a colleague of his called Michael Swallow, who worked at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. And they set up these residential music courses for disabled young people. And I was invited to go on one. And I talked to Richard about my ideas for music in the deaf. And to cut this long story short, um, Richard actually ended up paying my salary for 10 years. The charity would not have succeeded without Richard's enthusiasm. And the very first sound performance I ever did was in Dewsbury Town Hall in West Yorkshire when Richard, no, yes, yes, it wasn't used to be a town hall. Um, when he came to do the narration for Peter and the Wolf with the orchestra of Opera North. And I thought this would be a very good thing to sound. So we went ahead and did it. And afterwards, Richard and I were talking about musical theatre, which is my other big love. And I said, I'd really like to sign a performance of Joseph. And at that point, a new production had opened at the London Palladium. It was 1991. And so Richard said, why don't you write to Andrew? And like a complete idiot, I asked, Andrew who? Uh, Lloyd Webber. Oh, him. So I sent this letter off saying, why don't you have a signed show? And the response came back, yeah, sounds a good idea. Who is going to do it? I thought, well, I'll have a go. Um, nobody asked any questions. So 17th of June 1992, that was my first big signed performance at the London Palladium. Uh, which is not a bad place to start. It really isn't. It's a decent, decent first yeah, step. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great first step. I thought it was the only show I did, but then they asked me to do another Joseph and also to interpret a workshop for young people beforehand. And in the audience of that first performance was Nick Allard, who was Cameron McIntosh's right-hand man. And he contacted me a little bit later and said, would you like to come and do a mix? Um, so I started doing Lamer's Cat Phantom, Starlight Express, a whole load of shows. Um, and I was the first person to do nearly all of those productions in the UK because there was very, very little sound access to theatre back in the early 90s. Um, I love being in a theatre. I like the creativity. I like being surrounded by actors, singers, dancers. I love watching people warm up. You, know, you sit there and think, blimey, you're good. Um, but <laughs> I'm terrible sitting in an audience. I hate sitting in an audience uh, because I'm always picking things. I can never relax and just watch something. 
So for about 30 years now, I've been doing Sam Theatre. I haven't done much in recent years. There was a lot of politics involved um, because there were quite a number of people who said, ah, oh, hang on, you're deaf. You shouldn't be doing that. And you don't have a qualification. As if the fact that you're deaf and you're a musician and you've been signing for, let me see, 48 years of your life is of no consequence whatsoever. Well, and of course, you know, the the fact that those qualifications readily exist for you to just walk into and, and do, I'm sure. No, no. <laughs> the obsession with qualifications that modern life has is really infuriating. Yeah. Um, all it proves that you've spent a large amount of money and you've done an exam or an assessment. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've actually got the skills and the competence to do that job. Um, and I suppose... There have been occasions, particularly in the last decade, when that kind of got in the way of me being able to develop and progress in what I do, because you have um, a fair number of PC people who say, oh, no, no, you need to have this. Uh... Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I'll stop there on that one. <laughs> and um, so... We're going to talk about, it's just amazing, I could listen to you talk about your career forever. Um, we're going to talk about what you think we all need to know about making classical music more accessible, um, which is a very hot topic at the moment, as uh, I'm sure you'd agree. Um, so let's start with, you clearly have a very um, involved and unique take on this. Tell us, tell us what we should know. <laughs> Uh, yes, I am very involved. I mean, my background is Western classical. Um, that's mm. what I grew up with. I always went to orchestra concerts, recitals, um, and all the rest of it. And so seeing classical music being made more accessible has really become a huge drive for me, if you like. Um, I've already mentioned that I did Peace in the Wolf back in 1991. And it was must have been about 20 years before I did another classical performance. Uh, that was one uh, choir in Huddersfield, not the Huddersfield Choral, another one, um, asked me if I'd go and stand the Messiah. And for yeah, nearly a decade, that was just about the only thing I ever did. Occasionally, someone said, well, let's do Peter and the Wolf. Um, and then in 2010, I did the first ever time from to the BBC. That came about because the year, 18 months earlier, um, I was involved in a project which was exploring incidents of hearing loss among classical musicians. And at one particular event, there were some people from the firm's office. And I freely admit that I basically cornered them and said, the firm's have been going back over a century. Why don't you start providing access? And I thought, yeah, 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 we must do something. Um, and so, over about three or four months, a few emails went back and forth. And eventually, they said, yes, we've decided to do one. Um, we'd like to do the Sondheim at 80 from, um, with Judy Dench and Simon Russell, Bale, Daniel Evans, Caroline O'Connor, Maria Friedman, a whole lot of people, some of whom I knew from my music of 30 days anyway. Um, and they really were fantastic that first year. Um, they did a lot of promotion and they were really keen to make it happen. And unfortunately, uh, the problems, in my opinion, since then, 
have been largely tokenistic. Um, but they followed up the Sondheim one by their horrible histories, which was huge fun. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always wanted to do a big classic concert. Uh, they still haven't done any of those. For years, they did 10 pieces, or they do the CBBs from. This year, they're actually having six sound forms, but none of them are what you would call conventional classical music concerts. Um, and I actually gave up emailing them and complaining. Um, I'd love to go back to the proms, I really would. But I think they need to realise that there is a much bigger audience out there than they are currently getting. You see, one of the arguments I had with them about 10 pieces was they used to create all these resources for 10 pieces, but none of them were accessible. Mm. So what's the point in promoting a concert at the Royal Albert Hall to play these 10 pieces when nobody can actually access any resources of information about them in advance? It's like putting the car before the horse. Um, and so basically I've given up with the problems, but I would always love to go back. Um, I suppose the big breakthrough really came in February this year, 2022, when I was part of a panel at the Association of British Orchestras Conference in Glasgow. I discovered November last year that they were having a session about deaf access and BSL, but noticed that there wasn't a deaf person on the panel. So I inveigled my way in out of about two parts. And there were several people, several orchestras at that event who then contacted me and said, would you like to do this? Would you like to do that? Um, the Royal Liverpool Fell had already expressed an interest and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, I think it was somebody from the RPR, asked me what was on my bucket list. And one of the pieces was the War Requiem. And so in March, they contacted me and said, we understand this is on your bucket list and we're doing it in May. Would you like to come and do it? So I said, yes, of course. Um, so that was May 26th. And we had about eight deaf people in the audience most of whom had never been to a classical concert in their life. Um, they were just blown away by these huge forces, massive choir, massive orchestra, um, by the fact that there was a deaf person signing it as well. You know, they really found it an eye-opener, and they really, really want to see more of this. So we know there's an audience. Um, the RPL brilliantly have actually brought me for two more concerts. One is one of the John Rutter Christmas concerts, and then early next year, we're doing a musical one. Um, in the meantime, I contacted the CBSO. Um, the CBSO had a rather strange background because a few years ago, they started providing pre-concert talks with BSL interpretation, which sounds great, but you can only access the pre-concert talk if you are holding a ticket for the concert. And the concert itself is not signed. Therefore, why are you bothering to have the pre-concert talk signed? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And um, I chatted with Gareth Beedy, who'd moved down there from the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. And initially, the CBSO asked me 
if I would do coming up a warner. And I said, no, because if you've never had a bunch of deaf people in a classical concert before, coming up a warner is a bit challenging. It's also rude, which is probably about it very interesting for Sino. It's very diverse, very explicit. <laughs> but it's not the ideal opening concert. No. Yeah. I'll start with something which is, like, I don't mean accessible in the sense of signing or audio description, but something which has got clear narrative, preferably in English. Um, so something like the Messiah is always a good start because people know the story. Doing the passions are also pretty good because people know the story. And there's a huge amount of drama on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to do the creation. That's still on my bucket list. But not many people do that nowadays, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, because you asked me what could orchestras do, um, they, I think the fundamental thing is orchestras need to think more widely. If you think about subscribers, for most orchestral concert seasons, they are older people, they are wealthier people, and they're also the people who are most at risk of losing one of their senses, whether that be sight, hearing, mobility, whatever. Mm. And orchestras are desperate to hang on to their subscribers. If they start providing BSL, audio description, whatever, even though those people right now may not be using it, they will realise, ah, oh, even if I do lose my hearing sight, I can still come to concerts and enjoy it. Now, that sounds like a purely economic argument, um, but I think most doctors would agree with that. They need to do that. They also need to develop new audiences. It's very hard getting younger people into the concert hall. And what so many people say to me is that when you're signing a concert, it adds so much to that performance. It's not just about providing something for deaf people. It really makes the entire audience think about what they're hearing, what they're singing, what they're reading. Um, Because I remember when I first did The Messiah, quite a number of people said to me, well, we've heard this year in, year out for decades, but we've never really thought about that. On the moment you have that visual representation of whatever your text is, plus all the melody, harmony, music, emotion going on, it really has a phenomenal impact. Um, and so I want them to think that access is not just meant for that tiny group of people, uh, something that has far wider application for people. But the practicalities are that the venue and the orchestra ensemble need to work more closely in partnership. Because quite often, the orchestra doesn't own and run the venue where they perform. Um, so, for example, at one major concert hall, you could actually book tickets online for a concert, but you couldn't pay for them. So you would then have to get a hearing person to ring up for you and pay for the ticket. And for me, that is unacceptable. Yeah. Um, equally, if a, hearing, if a deaf person actually goes to the box office in person and says, I want to book for this, that person behind the desk has got to know exactly when that performance is, where the interpreter is standing, where the seats are, and what the discount is. That's your first point of contact. 
And if they don't know that information, that potential audience member is going to walk away and they're not going to come back. Um, it's frustrating that in 2022, we still have one saying, oh no, we can't do that. You have to join an access scheme. You have to get somebody to come in and pay or bring up and pay. Um, why? Um, I have a big problem with access list. You don't have um, access list for gender. You don't have an access list for race. Why do you have to have an access list for disability? It draws attention to the fact you've got one. Um, well, it also, yeah, I mean, it's it's lazy on behalf of um, the organisations, frankly, isn't it? Because it means that it, it's because they have one person who understands what's needed rather than training everyone um, to be able to, to deal with, um, with access requirements. And it must surely just perpetuate the sense of difference enormously. Yeah, yeah. So often they, they just want to make it as easy as possible for themselves. They're not actually interested in doing more than ticking boxes. Uh, mm. But again, one venue says, well, when we have access stuff, um, we always put the interpreter here and we see people there. I said, yeah, but this is not appropriate for me. Uh, if you want to put me behind the double baser, that's a lot harder to follow what's going on. I've got a high frequency hearing loss. And if all you can feel is double baser, that's not helpful. Um, um, sometimes you might need to move while you are on stage, but I need to be able to see the conductor, the soloist, and the orchestra, and the audience. Yeah. Um, because there was one menu where they decided, well, we would put the interpreter here, but the seats were way over to one side. As long as you're looking at them like that, that's no good. Yeah. Um, no. So it's box ticking and tokenistic, and we need to get beyond that. We really well, do. Absolutely, we're also um, not integrated in terms of thinking. So, uh, which is you know obviously the next stage from tokenistic, isn't it? But you you yeah, it's not somebody looking at a performance as a whole that includes interpretation or sign language performance and saying here's the best thing for this full experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's also difficult for orchestras, the classical music world, to actually know whether your interpreter is actually musically literate. Um, it frustrates me immensely uh, at any sound event when you see somebody interpreting and they're not musical. You appreciate know? mm. uh, that if you're signing a gig, you know, like somebody said, signing a Lancheven gig, for example, there's a lot of songs to learn. But how detailed can you actually about your interpretation and the amount of time you've got available to prep? Now, I watch a lot of interpreters, and so many of them have become much more sound English rather than BSL. They really don't have time to think about what does this song mean, how do I put it across? Um, and particularly with classical music, where you've got a lot more detail going on, structurally, harmonically, it's by thought that the person delivering it knows something about music. I sometimes make life harder for myself than I need to because I'm, I'm it's the musician I made. It's just got feeling. I need to know what's going on. I need to know the structure. I need all the details so that I can actually put it across with confidence. It's not a superficial thing. For example, if you've got lyrics being repeated, the lyrics may be the same, but the melody line may not be the same. The harmony underneath it may be different. The orchestration may be different. Therefore, you need to sign it differently every time those lyrics repeat. 
That's mm. not just da 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 da. It's much all the time. Much and the same way the performers. That's going on underneath. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the performers need to, you know, when you get, I'm uh, thinking of Messiah, if every Da Capo was the same, then it would get very boring very quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think that's another reason why people enjoy it, because it is something different. Um, mm. So I think it was three or four years ago, four years ago, um, I did a Messiah with Royal Northern Symphonia at the stage, Goathead. And Jeanette Sorrell, who runs Apollo Spire in Cleveland, I think, over in Ohio, um, she came over to do it. And at the first break, all of us, including the solos, went, wow, this is like a brand new piece. We've never done it this way before. She wanted people to do it off the ball. She wanted them to move around and do it more like a semi-stage opera. Mm. Um, at one point, when she takes the chorus off stage, and they stand down the side of the audience and they sing, he trusted in God, directly at the audience. And it was just, wow. The purists hated it. Of course they did. But <laughs> it was brilliant because it was so dramatic and it was so full of life. Um, that's one reason why I went to Liverpool in March or April, because I discovered that Jeanette was coming over to do the St. John Passion. She's done a semi-dramatized version of that. And it's absolutely brilliant because it's new and it's fresh and it's exciting. That's what we need. Absolutely, absolutely. Bringing things to people in a different and exciting way. Yeah. yeah. Um, And London in particular needs to catch up. Um, The London concert scene. There's been debates about the London concert scene for decades. How many orchestras can London maintain, sustain? Um, what kind of programming do they do? Uh, I'm on the South Bank access list and other main analysts, and you never get anything classical signed. And I emailed them a couple of months ago. I said, look, I've done Messiahs, I've done St. John Pass, and I've done Trial of Our Time, War, Requiem, all the stuff. Talked about the RPO creating an audience and saying, there are people who want to come to those. Why don't you provide signed classical stuff? And eventually I got reply back saying, well, thank you very much. We've passed it on to our team. But we don't think they'll do anything because they're quite happy with what they provide and what the service providers. No, it's not about you. You know, some But we need to train other deaf people and other signers to be able to do this work. Yeah, I was thinking that. You're background and how you've come into it is very particular do you are there many others like you or <laughs> um there was angie newman she's been working with most london officers and she's doing all the stuff for the bomb this year um i've known her for quite a few years she has a music degree she has a music background she's a fabulous interpreter but she admits that she has never ever signed a full classical work choral work yeah. mm. um this year she was doing innovation for i think there's a war we're doing beethoven five you know talking about how it's constructed which is great but i want to go beyond that um there must be a few other deaf people around who can do it mm-hmm. um last october the fourth choir which is a london-based semi-professional lgbtq plus choir they put on a concert with the called meeting place I think, 
Um, and what they wanted to do was went to gather deaf and hearing people. Um, over a service of conversations, we came up with the idea of having four signers. Now, this is something I've wanted to do for years. So you had an SATB signer. So you could actually show how all the music was constructed and how it was all put together. And they started the program with the tallies, if you love me. And we made the decision that the choir wouldn't sing the first verse. They were off stage. They could have sung it off stage. And of course, the audience were expecting to hear singing, and they did not. All they got was four people signing each part in counterpoint. Um, for some people, they were like, wow, this is amazing. Stephen was sat next to someone who turned to him and said, my God, I hope the whole thing isn't going to be like this. Um, oh, oh so, dear. <laughs> attitude. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, oh, interesting. But it was fantastic. Um, mm. I've long wanted to have a sort of elite little signing choir who can do stuff and harmonize um, and a counterpoint. Now, it's mm. challenging. Um, and all four of these signers were deaf as well. That made a big difference. Uh, but you need people who are musically literate who can follow a score. They wanted me to work out the translations for most of the pieces for them, which I'm quite happy to do because I love that challenge of sitting down, working it all out. Uh, and then trying to put it all together. Um, mm. I think it's probably a bit ambitious to say that we're going to have a 40-part signing choir doing uh, Talis Spem or James McMillan's Bidiaquam. Uh, but who knows, maybe one day in the future. Probably not in my life, so I'm a bit ambitious. I think we need to multi-track it like Queen did and Bohemian Rhapsody way back in 75. Well, that's, eight. that's an option. Um, that'd be great to see. Fantastic, thank you. Um, what I'm just really struck by um, the relevance of what you're saying to the big picture of the future of classical music audiences um, and the need to engage people and to think about what audiences need rather than thinking about what venues need or what um, you know event series organizations need it feels to me we could do really well to look at the needs of the deaf community and, and um, other access needs and as a sort of way of looking much more openly at the classical music concert experience and just who would access it if we were to take away a lot of the expectations uh well it should be accessible for everybody all the time it should absolutely Access shouldn't be something which is an afterthought, which is often is. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I mean is if, if that were the case and it, it wasn't being afterthought, then it would really change. There's a, there's a problem with classical music audiences diminishing and more and more people feeling like it's not for them. Um, I suppose, yeah, my sort of question or what I put to you is that would in a world in which access was completely integral and, and never an afterthought, Perhaps this is the answer to the problem we have with audiences in general. Oh, oh. it would be lovely to create an environment where everybody feels included and everybody feels welcome. Um, and that will only change when the people at the top actually get it. Mm. Um, I mean, from my, from my years of working in theatre, I know that a lot of venues had an access officer. 
But they didn't really have any power. They didn't control yeah. any budget. They didn't have any authority. And the people above them weren't terribly interested. Mm. Access officers tended not to stay in the job for very long. Um, and so as soon as I left, it was back to square one all the time. Um, I'm not aware of that many venues, um, orchestras, ensembles and so on that have access offices. It tends to be lumped in now with education and outreach. But again, it, it's often an afterthought. The argument that I used at the IBO conference was a lot of you do schools concerts and family concerts while you have an interpreter, but you don't provide anything beyond that. So again, it's, it's this idea of a orchestra trying to their mindset, broadening everything out. It's like at the moment you give people a carrot, you dangle it in a family concert, a schools concert, but then you don't give them anything else. I remember saying this at CBS back in the early 90s because they used to do a lot of projects with deaf children in Birmingham back in those days. Or they would go to a performance, but they would do nothing again to get them back in the building. So, so that's yeah. 30 years of lost audiences you've got. Yeah. It's got to be joined up thinking. That's important. That. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you what your message would be to the, the people at the top then. Um. Um, you need to listen to the people who make up your audiences um, they do know better than you I understand from a management point of view and from the money people's point of view that they don't see access performances as making any money but it shouldn't always have to be about making money you know, you're dealing with music and the arts here, which should be a fundamental part of people's lives, despite the government doing their dandies to chuck them out. Um, it's, it's, it's this holistic approach. And I will keep coming back to that. But it's this holistic approach about getting people in. Um, because if you've got, say, say you've got a family, they want to come to a concert, but one of them is deaf. So somebody's left out. Or you might have someone who's visually impaired. Maybe they would like captioning for a call or concert or whatever. Yeah, it's it's not rocket science, but so often people make it harder than they need to. They overcomplicate things and they try and look for the problems rather than the solutions. The solutions are dead easy. Talk to me, talk to other access people who know what they're talking about. Yeah. Sort out a day, sort out where, going to, where the interpreter access provider is going to be, sort out the seat, sort out a discount, make sure people can book easily. Boom, what's your problem? Yeah, it really isn't difficult. <laughs> Done. Um, <clears throat> uh, man, management, management needs to accept they have responsibility. They can't pass it on to people further down. Uh, mm. At the end of the day, they're the chief exec. They're the ones who are responsible for what's going on. And quite often, they would probably be quite grab a smack at just how effective good access can be, both in attracting new people, keeping older people, and giving all concert gathers a much more rewarding experience. Because it's not just an oral one, it's a visual one too. Thank you. That's uh hope that message gets across. <laughs>
Um, what have you got coming up, Paul? Have you got anything you'd like to, to plug or let our listeners know about? Uh, well, next week I am at Waterbury Opera Festival in Oxfordshire. I have Peter and the Wolf. Um, um, a really gorgeous little production, which is reorchestrated for, I think, six or seven players. Um, and then two actor dancers. Um, I should have been more integrated into that. But unfortunately, I had COVID during the main rehearsal period. So I think the first performance, I'll be not on the sidelines, but I won't be as involved as everybody would like me to be. But if you go through six performances, get involved somehow. Um, I have got some performances of Las Traviata coming up for Upper North, both in Leeds and on tour in the autumn. And then I'm doing the Cunning Little Vixen in English. <laughs> in the <laughs> spring! Um, I'm doing some work with children's classic concerts again in Scotland. They are fantastic. And if you don't know them, um, look them up. Um, they are brilliant at doing interactive, fun, exciting concerts for young people. And they invited some deaf people. I think they about 20 deaf people to concert that I signed for them in Dundee. And they kept everyone behind afterwards, asked to stay behind so they could get some feedback. And they loved it. They want to see more of those. So I'm doing some stuff with them. I've got some children's Messiah with Junadian Consort in December. But sadly, not the whole Messiah. Why not? Um, I've got three concerts coming up with all Liverpool Phil, Messiah, then St. Matthew Passon, for which I need to grow two more hands for the double choir bit. Um, <laughs> and Vaughan Williams' Song to Travel in May. Um, I've got a couple of RPO ones. I'm talking to Royal Scottish National about doing the war Requiem with them. Um, but they want to find out more about how they can engage with the deaf community. Mm. Um, I'm not really sure if that's the right approach yet, but we'll see what happens. Um, there's a lot of people who are keen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got enough going on, but there's still a bucket left for me to fulfil. And what else is on your bucket list? I need time to actually learn all this. <laughs> um, well, I've ticked the war back room off, I've done that. The, so, so Matthew Passman was on the list, I'll tick that off next year. Um, creation, definitely want to do that. Um, I'd love to do more, despite what I said there about stuff being in England, I'd love to do some more Mozart and Haydn matters. Um, I'd love to do Radio L'Enfance and Chris, but how did anybody ever do that? Um, and I will do anything, and I mean anything, by James McMillan, anytime. I still haven't done the seven last words, and I'm desperate to do the seven last words. Which reminds me, um, another gig, um, at the Covenant Trice on the 30th of September, I'm doing a concert with the King Singers. Now that is a challenge. That's really different. I've got all the music. Um, they're doing some of the Ligeti Alice in Wonderland settings. And I'm like, oh, wow. <clears throat> I've got my wow. work out here. But it, it's what I love. I, I love the challenge. I love the challenge of doing it. Oh, that, that sounds really exciting. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about it. Pleasure. Thank you for supporting me and encouraging me. Let's see what we can achieve together. Absolutely. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Paul, for your wonderful work ideas and an insight to your admirable career. I'm sure that our viewers are absolutely amazed by your achievements. I also have to say that I'm blown away by learning that your debut took place in the London Palladium. What a place to start. Finally, I find your reflection on what can performers, orchestras and venues do to become more accessible fascinating. You summed it up perfectly. Uh, we need to focus on solutions and not problems. It's not rocket science and the solutions are already out there. We just need to be committed to them. It's been a real privilege to have you here, Paul. Thank you so much. And thank you, Stephen, as well, for your time and for your hard work in making classical music a more accessible and inclusive art. But an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.